Hi, dance friends, and welcome to another special holiday episode of the Dance Edit podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer, and I'm here on my own again today for this final episode of 2021, the last one. Um, Without my co-hosts around this week, rather than doing the usual news roundtable discussion, we've got part two of our Dance Edit Best of 2021 retrospective. So as I mentioned last week, we're looking back at some of our favorite interview moments from 2021 because we talked to a whole lot of brilliant dance world folks over the course of the year. Some of these clips are from interviews that aired during regular podcast episodes, but some of them are from our new premium interview series, The Dance Edit Extra, which launched this fall on Apple Podcasts. And if you've been enjoying the Edit Extra previews, I hope you'll head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe to the series because we have some really great stuff planned for The Dance Edit Extra in 2022, and you'll only hear it if you sign up for that separate podcast feed. So check it out. Alrighty, without further ado, let's get into our first clip of the episode, and it's a good one. We're starting with Ayadeli Cassell and Toria Beard, who talked with us back in episode 68, back in June. Ayadeli is, of course, a tap icon, and Toria is a brilliant director and producer and creative consultant. They are both art partners and life partners, and the two of them are every bit as generous in an interview context as they are in their artistic work, which if you know their artistic work, you know it's always rooted in generosity and just joy. So I wanted to share a portion of the conversation where they got into the importance of dance as community art, because that's really at the center of what they do. Here it is. I want to talk about the idea of dance for the community um, because I mean so often dance performance is this like insular exclusionary thing it's happening in a theater or some other like closed off like rarefied space and I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that it's pushed a lot of dance either outside where it kind of automatically becomes a community performance or online where it's accessible to a much wider audience so how can the dance world kind of grow and reinforce that idea of dance as community art? And do you think that shift will will stick as the pandemic subsides? I would love for it to, I mean, I would love for it to stick. People have often asked me like, oh, what's your favorite venue to play in? You know, and I'm like, I... I like to be with where with the people who want to be with me, right? So, and that has happened from everywhere from the six train station at you know in Hunts Point in, in the Bronx, like literally right outside the platform, to when I was younger in the platform, I was just dancing and people would gather, and the White House and Carnegie Hall. I've done, I've done, I've done that all, and I think that um, I just think it's I think it's really important and really energizing and really humbling and a beautiful experience to spend just spend time with people in all environments, right? Um, and I think that we have underestimated as I think not, not only artists, but even institutions have underestimated like the value and and the beauty of that, of connection with human beings in period, no matter what container we happen to be in, you know, I think I find power in it originating from me, the artist to, to, to maybe request that and demand that and to make and to create those spaces, you know what I mean? To say like, no, it's important. Like, I love this, like being in a theater and it's beautiful and the lights and all that, but also there's value in like literally setting up your board and being in the park or just, you know, and 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 engaging in that way as well, you know? Uh, Tori, what do you think about that? Well, I think dance 
was born in community. It is something that happens uh, with people and their families. Uh, every type of celebration, it marks most all occasions, right? And so the fact that it has been taken away from the community in some respects and, and put in these, um, I forget how you, um, how you described it, in the rarefied <laughs> spaces um, is curious, right? Why, why has that happened? And what we are the same people, no matter where we perform. The artistry mm. that we carry with us is the same, whether we're dancing, you know, in the middle of the street for New York Pops Up or, you know, in whatever theater on whatever stage, right? And so I don't know. I mean, this is, it seems like a, may seem like a simple question, but I think there's so many layers to this. And I, and my short, the shortest answer I can give is that, yes, I hope this continues on. I hope we stop the, the idea that dance for the community, or we move away from the idea that there's a certain type of dance that is created for community consumption. And there's another type of dance that is created for theaters and to be programmed for a seasoned ticket holder, you know, um, because there is something troubling in that. I think it creates a disconnect with our within our society, you know, and I hope we continue with this this type of generosity and this type of sharing and, you know, everybody's saying what's going to happen when we go back. And I that is very like triggering to me. I, I love to think of it as when we go forward and I hope we move forward uh, with the same type of energy that we are emerging with. We might be returning to stages, but we're going forward. We're not going back. I love that idea. So next up today, we have the extraordinary Rena Butler, the dancer and choreographer who recently became Gibney Company's first ever choreographic associate. And that's a position that's sort of quietly revolutionary in its design, which combines both choreographing and performing. And actually, quietly revolutionary, that's a good description of Rena herself, too. She is a deeply thoughtful and compassionate practitioner who sees dance as fundamentally intertwined with advocacy. So here's an excerpt from our conversation in which she gets at not just the things that are broken inside a lot of dance institutions, but at what can be done to fix those problems. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation especially during the pandemic, about how traditional dance institutions are kind of broken and that they don't support dance makers in the ways that they need to be supported. And especially people who, like you, are looking to be, you know, agents of change who have other interests. What else do you, what should the dance community be doing to address this kind of like institutional dysfunction? That's such a great question. We were just talking about that actually in rehearsal um, because I feel it's not just dance makers that face this. I think it's dancers in general mm -hmm. and how we prioritize the coin or the money over the well-being of the, of the face of the organization, essentially. And it's as if every organization, not every, but most, when they hire dance artists, it's this act of just releasing sense of self and being a part of the group in the ensemble. So we're not promoting individuality. We decenter ourselves to make art happen, but not in such a healthy way. 
at all. And then, you know, what also just whatever energy is at the front of the room is so important. And I think in spaces, organizations, because of the clout around a creator or choreographer, kind of yield to whatever energy the choreographer is putting at the front of the room. And I've been in situations where I've had terrible experiences <laughs> with uh, a chore like a choreographer being at the front of the room and not necessarily know knowing how to manage um, maybe their feelings or insecurities, which are then projected onto the dancers and, and we're expected to take them. I think it's also, it all, it's like a prism. I think it all folds into each other. And I, I feel what sticks out to me most in what you're asking me is how do we prioritize mental health? Yeah. And um, I just think that it really folds into each other. It's like, how are we supporting the dancers that maintain the work? Uh, humanizing them. If you're not feeling emotionally ready today, okay, how do we navigate that? What are some creative solutions um, other than like suck it up and just put your tights on and go, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is the culture. And I'm starting to understand what my boundaries are too as a dance artist. I think being older now, being in my 30s, well, I told you, I'm like, the knees ain't bending like they used to, and the back is not arching like it used to either. So <laughs> I'm really needing to go, I understand where you're going. This is great. Uh, but today, the conversation with my body, my body is telling me no. <laughs> so, you know, and then also as a, as a choreographer, being on the other side of the room, am I really aware enough? Am I really present where I am giving the dancers that I'm asking so much from um, them space to be themselves. I think it's really a question of how are we holding and sharing space? And this is a phrase we hear a lot of, and I think it really rings true. There's so much richness, even just in that short excerpt. I really hope you have a moment to go back and listen to the whole interview, which aired in episode 58 from this April. Our third clip today comes from Efrat Asheri, who is actually a Dance Edit podcast veteran. Efrat, who's a club dancer, a b-girl, a concert dance performer, a choreographer, a scholar, just a fantastically smart and versatile artist. You actually first heard her voice on the podcast in 2020. I think she actually made our best of roundup for 2020, in fact. So this year, she returned for a more in-depth interview for the Dance Edit Extra. But we started the conversation where she left off, essentially, in her 2020 appearance on the pod. So here's the clip. You left a voice memo for us last June, June of 2020, mm -hmm. as part of a voice memo series that we were doing, little like messages in a bottle at the beginning of shutdowns. And your voice in the recording was actually hoarse because you had been out at Black Lives Matter protests. And you asked in the recording, what does it mean to be a white person whose work is rooted in Black vernacular dance? And I'm wondering if you can talk about how you've continued to consider that question and potential answers to it in the ensuing months. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always in the work, you know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. even before, yeah, like last mm -hmm. year and sort of this global reckoning and really sort of coming together to fight for black liberation, right? Globally. Mm -hmm. I mean, which is wow. But I think for any white, uh, white artist that's in the underground scene that has been blessed with being part of a community 
where you really feel like that collective consciousness is celebrating each individual's voice and everyone is valued so uniquely for who they are. And that space as like the vision or the potential of a sort of utopic ideal of what it means to be really together. If you don't see that as a call to action, if you don't see that as a magnifying glass to the injustices above ground, specifically against the communities that have created this space that you are now a part of, that you are now a guest in, that you are now fortunate to be in this like really meaningful human relationship with the people, the music, the lineage, the ancestors, right? The DJs, like everything. If you don't understand that as a call to action and as a responsibility for you to keep fighting for all of those who don't have the same access to opportunity and to education and to just security, healthcare, all those things that if you're white in this country, you have more access to. Like if you're not fighting on that level, then something's wrong then you miss the mark, you know, like you're not really seeing what the community is. So I don't know if that answers the questions, but it is just always there. And it's always like a, a scrutinizing as a white Jewish woman, like, you know, leading this company. It's like, okay, I'm always checking myself, looking for any blind spots and stuff. And we talk about it a lot um, within the company. And it's just, it's just part of the work, you know, it's not separate from the work. The dance floor as a call to action. I feel like I want to tattoo that somewhere on my body. It is so exactly right. So last but absolutely not least in our best of 2021 series, we have Jamar Roberts. And Jamar, of course, was a longtime star at Alvin Ailey beginning in 2002. He's also the company's first ever resident choreographer. And we talked just before his last performance as a dancer with the company, which happened earlier this month. Jamar has this unusually balanced perspective on performing and where it fits into his life. It's not his entire identity and neither is choreography. He's always had myriad artistic interests beyond dance entirely. And his dance work is always informed by bigger questions he has about the world at large. It's always connected to a greater humanity. So here's an excerpt from his Dance Edit Extra interview where he talks about all of that. At this sort of like inflection point in your career, which is coinciding with this inflection point in the wider world too, I'm wondering in a bigger picture sense what ideas and questions are sort of brewing in you. What are you ruminating on? right now? Mm, you know, I'm a very honest person. So to answer this question. Is this dangerous? <laughs> uh, no, it's not dangerous. It's cool. I think bigger, one of the bigger questions is, you know, I'm, I'm on such a, what feels like such a fast track right now. Everything feels a little bit speedy. And, and when that happens, I think for me, there's this desire to want to slow down. And so when I think of slowing down, it, it comes with questions like, so is this it? You're just gonna make steps until you die. You're just gonna be on the fast track for like forever. Like how, like where is this gonna go? How is this going to move with you as you mature? You know, even even in the past year, I feel like, like the amount of exhaustion or like effort that has to be put into everything, it kind of like, it kind of wears, it wears on you, um, especially energetically. So I'm thinking of like, okay, if you're still doing this 10 years down the line, how are you going to manage that? And what's that going to look like in terms of the work that you're making? I don't know. I'm kind of asking questions like that because I think it would be nice to like prepare 
you know, instead of like mm -hmm. getting to the age of 50 and being like, ah, I'm done with this. You know what I mean? If I can sort of like anticipate what will kind of be, you know, the, the, the tougher points, then I can kind of start to do the work to smooth them out now. Things like that. There's another thing that I'm kind of circling around that's sort of big picture, kind of like, what are you doing? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <Well>, just that. <laughs> yeah, like, what are you doing? Bigger picture, what are you doing and how, why are you doing it? Are you even making a dent? I think that largely, maybe there's an aspect of, of the work that I make that wants to like heal or like take care or like bring awareness to this this feeling or I'm aware of this situation so it can then incite some type of like you know taking care of what, what whatever the situation may be so I'm, I'm kind of thinking of what is the issue now with dance or where do you feel like dance falls short and how and what are you doing with your work that you think can help level it up level things up a little bit or or, or help what are you doing and why are you doing it those are really the most important questions to ask ourselves as dance artists or educators or administrators or enthusiasts, really just as people, period. Thank you for that, Jamar. And on that philosophical note, thanks also to all of you for tuning in for this holiday special. Next week, we'll be back in our regular format discussing the news that's been moving the dance world while we've been off. In the meantime, keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. And Happy New Year, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.